record. Let's do this. Hello, people. I just saw the record button go on. So let's let's jump into this and talk about men and women. This is going to be the most fiery and crazy and complicated and uh, and uh, shall we say triggering episode of our Ion lecture so far. I'd imagine we're going to talk about the the differences between men and women and how they actually have a seed of each other within them and how the psychological dynamics of being a man or being a woman are often far more complicated than we like to think. And of course, how Things like feminism and male cuckoldry seem to manifest quite, <laughs> quite prominently with these, these Jungian psychological problems. So I will preface, I have brought this stuff up before and I've had some lovely ladies in uh, various Jungian circles tell me that uh, I've got this all wrong. And to be honest, I, m- maybe I do. But what I have to say is that we are going to be approaching this from the, the, the viewpoint of biased young men. And so we may interpret young wrong, but we're probably going to give a fresh and you could say insightful perspective into the male mind and how we read young. And I, I feel that the, the Jungian uh, circle is very dominated by um, a, f- a feminine approach to it. And surely there's nothing wrong with that, but we're going to give our more, shall we say, based uh, interpretation as young dudes so take that with the take that grain of salt when you're looking through this but uh hopefully we'll give you an enjoyment and if you do get triggered write down in the comments take it all out on us we'd love it we'd love to see it so, uh, well no take it on Stefan, not on me thank you very much specifically on james right just write you english fucking chauvinist yeah so <laughs> it's academic young lecture i've ever seen in my goddamn life <laughs> um there's there's many angles we can do this so first of all i think we can talk about anima animus possession uh, and how that relates to feminism we can talk to anima possession and how that like uh how that is sort of like the soy boy meme and maybe we could talk a little bit about transgenderism to an extent and um, later we can get that, that this 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 might turn into a two or three part lecture series because it's very it's a very big topic and um, the gender dynamics the duality because i guess with with young like you sort of start off with that ego which is like the light and then you've got the shadow which is the black and you've got that yin yang dynamic and then it's almost like the archetype evolves into the duality archetype of of trying to combine the yin yang together the best way to perhaps think of of the anima and animus is is that yin yang symbol where you've got this this large white space which is masculinity but inside masculinity is this tiny nugget of femininity which is also order and chaos, as Jordan Peterson likes to tell us. And then it's the same thing on the flip side. You've got this duality and how they somewhat contain themselves and are constantly self-evolving into each other. So, James, I've done a lot of talking. Please give us your fantastic English perspective and all this. <laughs> Specifically English young man bias. Um, what I would like to preface, of course, is um, we will be approaching this. Well, we will inevitably have biases and everybody does. And if you don't believe that you have biases, you're probably sorely mistaken unless you're like, unless you're Carl Jung yourself, right? So what I'd like to say is I want to root this as much as humanly possible in the book itself, in the literature as much as possible. But then because of um, the tumultuous times in which we live in, this will inevitably become somewhat political, not with our political opinions, but on this is the literature how can we make this accessible to people and the best yes. way to do that is to map that on to the way things are happening on the cultural and political realms so you actually see the psychological manifest themselves but at the same time we've got to bear in mind that, that the anima and animus is only a small part of this book so it's a very important part but i don't want to get too caught up in that it's like this this is a, we're still continuing down the route remember from previous lectures we start up at the ego, down to the shadow, now at the next level of the unconscious. We're like, oh, what's going on down there? So we'll, we'll flesh that out for you. But ultimately, this is just another step towards the self and Satan and Christ and, uh, and Satan worship and all this other weird nonsense. James, that was, that was a far better introduction than my one. We should have given that to you. Yeah, just, well, you're, you're just like, yeah, fuck the soy boys, you know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, yeah right from now on you do the formal presentations because that was that was excellent it, it works with the britishness as well that's pretty good and um, shall we before like let's not wax lyrical too much shall we shall we dive into it somewhat um and just okay. see what they think um because i think it's important to say that just in the last chapter young ends with this cliffhanger because young is essentially a novelist in this book which is incredibly dense academic language and he he says here we go. In other words, it is quite within the bounds of possibility for a man to recognize the relative evil of his nature, but it is rare and shattering experience for him to gaze into the face of absolute evil. And so he's sort of suggesting that um, 
there, there is this illusion that hides us, hides us from the truth. And the shadow is almost like the curtain that you pass through. And then in the start of the, the third section on the anima and animus, he, 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 he calls the anima and the animus, he calls these the projection making force, which is very interesting. That's a very weird and technical idea. It's this idea of, uh, it's almost like, the shadow is that curtain and it's like the woman is the, it's almost like the shadow is part of this woman's dress and this woman is the anima. And once you enter through the shadow, pass through the shadow, you enter into the, the, the unconscious and from the shadow, from this dark, weird, mysterious place in the dark jungle, you will find the, the woman who is like the Lord of the jungle or the, the, the magic priestess or something like that. And that's, that's a very important idea to get your head around because this is young is essentially saying that it's not like you can just skip to the anima. It's like, Oh, I want to work on my anima and all that. He says, you have to really confront yourself a lot. And to speak of the hero's journey, I kind of feel the very like typical path for a young man is to grow up with his ego and try flesh the ego out as much as you can. And then eventually you'll have to face ideas like humility face ideas like uh, he, the, perhaps is the nature of his own brutality and stuff like that. And through that, he, he will develop a, a relationship to the things that are opposite to him, such as the yielding forces of the feminine. And that's when you start to learn about the, this is how you connect yourself to the animus somewhat. So uh, James thoughts. Uh, yeah, no, I think we should uh, crack on with the book. Okay, let's do it. Sir, with your non-dyslexic um, beautiful English voice, please read. All right, so this is chapter three of the book, if you're reading along, page 11, of course. Um, this is called The Syzygy, The Anima and Animus. Um, what then is this projection-making factor? The East calls it the spinning woman, Maya, who creates illusion by her dancing. Had we not long since known it was from the symbolism of dreams, this hint from the Orient would put us on the right track. The enveloping, embracing, and devouring element points unmistakably to the mother that is, to the son's relation to the real mother, to her imago, and to the woman who is to become a mother for him. His eros is passive like a child's. He hopes to be caught, sucked in, enveloped and devoured. He seeks, as it were, the protecting, nourishing, charmed circle of the mother, the condition of the infant released from every care in which the outside world bends over him and even forces happiness upon him. No wonder the real world vanishes from sight! Exclamation mark. You got any thoughts, sir? <gasps> I have a lot of thoughts, dude. I'm going to yeah, take exactly. a huge, God damn it. huge, huge deviation here. So there's, there's, in order to assist my, my memory, I'm going to, of course, we could talk a little bit about Maya and the Buddhist conception of Maya. That's one thing we should definitely talk about. I think we can talk about that after we talk about the Imago. That's another thing to talk about, what that means, because that's a very important distinction. It's almost like you've got your real mother and then you've got the impression she leaves on your psyche almost as like you're a piece of concrete and if she sticks her hand in it she'll leave this imago of her hand so mm -hmm. there's that side of it but most important is the the myth of oedipus i believe i think this is the most important thing to get into is this idea of the the fundamental nature of 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 the hero's journey of masculinity is that and this is a complicated myth it's it's that idea that the mother the world of the mother is the world of comfort and softness and it's i think it's to do with your relationship to suffering and pain and so the the strange thing about humanity is that we are we need to be incubated as children for like in insanely long periods of time in order to protect our heads and even humans even look like there's this thing called neoteny in biology where uh adult uh adult animals look look more and more like children and there's this situation with uh, humans where they look extremely like children human females for example have like those big eyes and uh, it's like very soft features and that's considered like super attractive and so there's this almost will in humanity to create um to, to make everything turn everything into, into a child and make it a baby and there's this like deification of children that's a beautiful thing and really important and so what happens with a man is that he, he gets raised by his mother and his mother spends eight, like 20 fucking years just holding her in his arms, being like, oh, don't ever get hurt. Oh, be safe, be safe and all this. And that's really important to help him grow. It's a really nourishing and important thing. But obviously what tends to happen then is that that can make the boy very soft. He can turn into a mama's boy pretty much. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he, and he can develop a really poor relationship with pain. And so you have this, this mother and she sort of becomes this like reality you know 
and she, he he's like this little soft thing inside reality where everything's soft and nice and then he he leaps out into the real world and he confronts what you call mother nature and she's like the dark side that he's been completely unaware of and mother nature is like you can think of mother nature as other women he's like this little soft flabby baby and he's like oh i love you're so beautiful i'm so horny and they're like go away you're disgusting i never want to take and she's like this is not what my mother was like or you go out into the jungle and a lion eats you and it's like this isn't what mother was like at all and so you you flip from that place of comfort and no suffering into the reality which is incredibly brutal and full of pain and your ability to deal with that reality, your ability to overcome the Oedipal situation, the devouring mother situation, and deal with the true mother, the mother nature, and um, develops you into someone who can deal with pain and be courageous, be all the masculine virtues that are not unique to children at all. And that's actually what gets you the attention of women and what gets you success in mother nature and what gets you the favor of the goddess and whatnot. I think that's a very important myth because that does show quite, quite conveniently how the mother can be the source of the anima. You can get this sense of softness in it and then how you need to flip into the goddess who is mother nature who actually starts off as brutal, especially the more, the more nice your mother has been, sometimes in many ways, the more brutal that can be. So it's, it's an interesting psychological play. James, thoughts yeah so what we're going to do is link down below two books which not only are essential books for i guess a budding academic but uh, will really flesh out understanding this particular material so one of the well they're both by eric neumann one of which is the origins and history of consciousness which we have mentioned previously and another one is the great mother but they're his two main texts both fantastic books so i wanted to i wanted to bring up briefly regarding the oedipal mother situation Obviously, it's one of Freud's ideas, but specifically in this and the way it applies to the hero's journey is technically speaking, the nicest place you've ever been in your entire life is your mother's womb. That's the most nourishing, caring place. And, and, and the mother's womb is like a semi-archetypal idea. It's almost paradise in a way, but the mother is there nourishing you and looking after you. Um, so every hero that embarks on their journey, we'll say, has to leave the clutches of the great mother and go towards the terrible mother. It's not quite that clear cut, but just, just for illustration purposes. And uh, a lot of the times when you refuse the call, you, um, you realize essentially that the great mother is a wonderful place. You don't want to leave it. And so whenever you go out into the world and you get burned and then you return back to comfort, it's like you're returning back to the mother's womb. And there's, there's a very, very interesting idea, which is in terms of sexuality, and this is where we get controversial, you have to in this particular topic. Eric Neumann specifically said that, that young men who engage in excessive masturbation are basically not embarking on the hero's journey. They're not embarking on, on their, their, wow. <laughs> their particular path to go and interact with the feminine and, and actually conquer her, so to speak, to become a good enough man so that she actually accepts you. Instead, excessive masturbation in, in youth is um, a sign of making love to yourself or the great mother itself. So you're, you're actually sitting there, all you're doing is making love to the great mother. It's like, that's a really interesting wow, idea. That's interesting. It's actually tied up sexually into this, hence the Oedipal idea. And it's immediately an idea that people are, are resistant to, like having sex yeah, with your own mother, yeah. but it's not having sex with your own mother. That's weird. That's just for dramatic effect. It's almost like engaging in some kind of intercourse with the mother Imago, the great mother, a mother as such, the mother archetype, the mother energy. And that's basically what is going on here. So what that particular paragraph was, was talking about is, is exactly that. It's like the mother is a wonderful thing and I want to be with the mother all the time. And that's what the child is. But as we get into the chapter, you'll realize uh, that's perhaps not the greatest thing for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really about like what makes a man. And in, in many ways, like th this is, this is so funny because there's so much in this. Cause I like, here we go. Here's oh, Jesus. I'm going to say this. Like when you're having a nice bath, like you are like imagining a woman, you know, you're, you're imagining females and you're, you're in the land of women. There's some mythologies. I think this could be from Islam where they say that you, you can get lost in the land of women or something like that. No, that's the fairy of porn, as Jordan Peterson put it. The fairy of porn. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You get lost in this dream world. And in many ways, that is actually worshiping the goddess. You know, you're like, you're, you're doing a little bit of prayer and visualization and conducting a ritual. And it's like, um, <laughs> It's like that, that is that, that sense where you're, 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 you're that's, that's a hallucination. And I guess this is what we're getting into this idea of a, a projection making factors that you're, you're somewhat not in reality at all. You're not out there talking to an actual woman. You're out there imagining, you know, the perfect shape woman. And like, she doesn't talk much usually. So it's like this type of, this type of idealized, uh, you know, young man's anima, exactly how he like ladies. And then it's like, 
you know, you go out into the real world and it's so much more messy and complicated and even like like the, the factors are so much it's more fleshy and touch comes into it more and all that stuff and it's it's um it, it, that, that is a perfect example of it yeah it's it's that that it's low there, resolution there, perfect reality versus real reality which is better in a weird way yeah there are multiple stages of confronting your anima and uh, one of them is that the very first stage of it is like uh, Eve from Adam and Eve. And it's like purely the sexual dynamics of it, where it's like the woman isn't her own, her own individual. It's like she, she purely exists as sort of uh, sexual satisfaction as such. It's like I will project that or my unconscious will project that I will carry out a ritual to, to worship her and to engage with her, which is basically sit down and um, get, get, get yourself some tissues and some hand lotion and open up your favorite website. You will engage for a set amount of time and then you will finish the ritual. You know, and, and it's getting slightly crude, but that is exactly what it is in the modern yeah. times. And that's what we're trying to do with these lectures, I guess, make it so you're like, oh, shit, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's utterly true. Like, it, it is ritualistic. It's very ritual. And there's there's something interesting. That I remember studying magic for a little bit and um, chaos magic and whatnot. And uh, one of the rituals they tell you about was casting spells. They, they talk that you need to charge them with energy. This is how serious the libido is, is that they would talk that you'd, you'd write a word out and you'd break up the, the, the making of the word and turn it into a symbol. And then you'd sit there and you'd masturbate and burn the symbol on a piece of paper while you're doing it as you're coming. And then you'd imprint it in your mind. And that's the idea of casting a magic spell and it's it's like the, the ritualization around these type of energies is, is utterly immense like even the ritual of um dating like if you think about that that's absolutely that's so wild it's like do you want to come out and sit with me and we'll eat food even though the intention is to see if we're like worthy of fucking each other and it's like completely it's like this is what we do and then it's like the whole ritual of the dance of of seduction and like if you could even call it that it's almost like trying to it's trying to figure these figure figure each other out and it's like all right is the move is the mood right to like make that move it's the going for the kiss and all that and all the stuff has to work and it's it's really magical and when you engage in it like obviously it's like irrational from from back here but when you engage in it there's something incredibly intoxicating and like beautiful and enjoyable about it and it's um uh, there's some really i don't know it's it's really it's really interesting how strong that ritualistic power is mm. um, definitely to avoid getting too sidetracked on sex magic maybe we should move on so we do more than <laughs> half a page in half an hour yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. sweet okay uh, this is big page though big page like we've got we've got oedipus um imago i'd love to talk about the imago a little bit more what's your thoughts on that oh so the well this this is funny because jung talked about the god image for example rather than God himself. The, the, the Imago, as far as I understand it, it's, it's the way your unconscious likes to latch onto things. It, it will take a particular subject and it will project certain things onto it and it will identify with that. But the Imago is, is like Dali, as you said, it's like an imprint on the unconscious. It's almost like mother as such. It's like, a, like an archetype thing. It's, it's not your actual mother. She's like, a, she's like a representation of it. So she's like part of the divine feminine, but there is the divine feminine as such, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and I would relate it back to that idea of even like if we're going to continue with this fat metaphor, you've got the, the, the world of uh, dream women and the Eve impression, you know, like, as you said, it starts off as Eve and moves on to Helen of Troy. She's more of an individuated person. Eventually you get the mother Mary, who's like a sacred mother. And the same with women is you've got Tarzan all the way up to like Hemingway. And then you've got like a, a, you know, a guru, like who like hangs out there and has a big long beard, like young himself. And so, um, the, the anima starts off with you imagining Eve, imagining these, these, it's just purely sexualized and image based and, and visual. And it's like get, getting yourself off, but that, that's like an image, but the real woman is like all of this stuff layered together. And you can make that mistake of obviously never interacting with the we're real, real woman. You, you can kind of only interact with your dream, your imagination. And as that is there, that's what evolves. So it's, it's a very interesting idea because this is the imago, this thing that you're focusing on. And um, this is imprinted into your psyche. And there's nothing really you can do about it. It always will be there, but it's important to see how that character develops. And I guess this is what Jung talks about as it, it's an archetype and how it shows up in your dreams is that it may start off at certain stages, almost like your Eve-like character, but eventually you might she might evolve and then appear to you like Virgil or is it Virgil or is it Beatrice in Dante's Inferno where she calls oh, yes, him on. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That, that's a really interesting thing is how that Imago might go from being super sexualized to being somewhat more mystical. We'll say. Yeah, it becomes, becomes more, more spiritual. 
Yeah. I guess and which becomes more sophisticated, which which makes you think like a lot of why young men are so obsessed with sex, perhaps, is that that's the particular form that their that their anima takes. But it's like the older you get, the less that appeals to you. Right? And how much of that is purely biological and how much of that is is the development of your own unconscious and you integrating that into your psyche. It's interesting, yeah, because as I said, Jung didn't expect people to individuate until they were like past 40. And so individuation, although he didn't say you can't start this process when you're younger. He, like he said, many young men uh, came to him and he actually made a lot of progress with them from doing this stuff. But, but he, he was saying that uh, it's almost like the first half of life is about vividly engaging with the libid- libid- libidinous energies of life, like Freud's side of things. And like, what is the better metaphor than just pure sexualized energy? That is sort of the point of life, like fundamentally. So there's something very fascinating about that. Um, and before we move on, then your thoughts on Maya from the Buddhist myth. My thoughts on Maya. I don't have too many thoughts on Maya, to be honest. Do you know the story that like um, Buddha was? Like, well, it's not necessarily Buddha. Like it is the Vedic myths in many ways, but it's this idea that the the world is an illusion, which they call Maya. Same it's the same root word as the idea of matter. And matter is an illusion. And if you look at like quantum physics and stuff like that, they're starting to impress on us this idea that perhaps matter may be more illusory than we like to think. And um, not to get too woo. And then uh, Maya as this projection making problem, like when you get to the, the top levels of spiritual development, you, where Buddha was at, he's like making this battle between nirvana, which is the truth. And it's almost like the, the, the woman as she is, as opposed to, the, the the illusion which is maya and in many ways he's sort of suggesting to us that all of reality itself is an illusion cast above our eyes and that the truth is something far more interesting and divine that we we need to like almost break away from this reality in order to access and get to that nirvana thing and i think that's a it's a pretty it's a pretty that's a pretty high level description of we could say the final stages of this individuation process to a large extent that that's that's maximizing it and um I just find that interesting. Yes, yeah, it sounds similar to the to the imago idea, where it's, it's like it's like a, a higher level abstraction rather than the specific subject. Yes, yes. Good shall sir. we shall we press on? Yes, quite. Very nice. Uh, if this situation is dramatized, as the unconscious usually dramatizes it, then there appears before you on the psychological stage a man living regressively, seeking his childhood and his mother, fleeing from a cold, cruel world which denies him understanding. Often a mother appears beside him who apparently shows not the slightest concern that her little son should become a man, but who, with tireless and self-immolating effort, neglects nothing that might hinder him from growing up and marrying. You behold the secret conspiracy between mother and son and how each helps the other to betray life. Where does the guilt lie? I'm just going to keep going because I know it ties into this. Where does the guilt lie? With the mother or with the son? Probably with both. The unsatisfied longing of the son for life and the world ought to be taken seriously. There is in him desire to touch reality, to embrace the earth and fructify the field of the world. But he makes no more than a series of fitful starts for his initiative as well as his staying power are crippled by the secret memory that the world and happiness may be had as a gift from the mother. The fragment of world which he, like every man, must encounter again and again is never quite the right one, since it does not fall into his lap, does not meet him halfway, but remains resistant, has to be conquered, and submits only to force. It makes demands on the masculinity of a man, on his ardour, above all on his courage and resolution when it comes to throwing his whole being on the scales. Sort of pause there, any thoughts on this? It just sounds, to me, this is going to the hero's journey stuff, but without actually touching it. It's like presuming you understand that. It's exactly what this book likes to do. It's like, I know you've read all of my works, people. I know you understand everything. Yes. Uh, and let's just sort of take this as, as, uh, as a given, essentially. It's, um, it's just a very fantastic description. There's so much in this. Like th- that little passage there for any young men listening is just gold. That's exactly. And like, it may not seem like gold, it's just words, but he's, he's describing a very simple psychological psychological dynamic that would change your life this is something i guess i had to deal with quite myself like i got an injury and i was suffering from chronic pain because it was like a a nerve injury and um i I was struggling for a long time trying to deal with it i was like oh i I feel so weak i feel so it was very hard for me to to stop the pain it was all the time and i discovered that in order to stop the pain i needed to build muscle which is 
very difficult to do when you're in pain because that, that means training when you're injured. And so it almost, the only way for me to heal myself was to change my relationship to pain. I had this sense that pain was a moral negative. It was evil in essence. And so I was always trying to avoid it. And I realized that, oh my God, that is making me soft. And that is actually this desire for comfort to an extent. That's, that was my secret desire to betray life and engage with the mother. And then you sort of get into the spiritual aspects of pain is like pain is suffering, suffering is life. And so I sort of said, fuck the most realistic, most live, the, the most direct way for me to access life is by going towards these pain points and engaging with them. And that built up my humility, my courage, and also my pain tolerance, my ability to be more masculine. And that allowed me to grow, get stronger, train, build muscle, overcome my injuries, and build confidence as well. Because if you can deal with pain fundamentally, you can deal with fucking anything, man. That's unbelievable. And um, it's a very simple switch. It's a switch from that desire for the secret desire for infinite comfort and everything to be easy towards this desire to struggle and fight like a man and all the virtues that will require you to build. And uh, the, the danger of the modern world is that we have become so abundant in our cities that we can create these giant cradles. And so the men all turn into soy boys because they never want to venture out of their cradle. And so they get trapped in it somewhat. And, but the true, everything you want, all your happiness is actually in the struggle. So uh, I, I, that's just a beautiful passage, the way you, you unquote it. It's really good. Um, yeah, yeah it definitely is. There's also another side of that. So you said, like, is this partly the fault of the sun? You know, and he mentioned that um, it's a conspiracy between mother and son, you know, and it's like, you can often blame the Oedipal mother for being the Oedipal mother, right? It's like, and, but who can blame her? It's, it's, it's like, I've had this in my own personal life. I wouldn't call my mother an Oedipal mother because the Oedipal mother is like an archetype. It's a story. You can't be the Oedipal mother. But it's like, there's definitely that relationship there where it's like, she, she was a traditional, which is becoming more and more scarce now, uh, like a traditional mother to me. And it's, and it's like, she, she raised me for... Um, 18 years or so when I first went to university at 18 I couldn't really do much for myself but I had a great mother and I had a great sense of, sense of morals a great sense of family but um, it was incredibly difficult on her for me to move away from her like incredibly incredibly difficult and she'd be like I really want you to bring your washing home James I feel like I really want you to do it all the time I really want you to call me it's like there is of course an element of we're family and we should talk to each other because of a strong tribe but there is also an element of you are my genetic investment for the last 18 years what the hell am i going to do now i've looked after you and now you're not completely capable of looking after yourself there are going to be people around who are going to tear you to pieces the world is hard come back to me my darling son come back to me so it's it's, it's also the mother's fault i'm just going, to, just going to press on so it goes into that in a little bit more detail Awesome. Um, for this, he would need a faithless Eros, one capable of forgetting his mother and undergoing the pain of relinquishing the first love of his life. The mother, foreseeing the danger, has carefully inculcated into him the virtues of faithfulness, devotion, loyalty, so as to protect him from the moral disruption, which is the risk of every life adventure. He has learned these lessons only too well, my fine people, and remains true to his darling mother. This naturally causes her the deepest anxiety, when, to her greater glory, he turns out to be one of those gays, for example, and at the same time affords her an unconscious satisfaction that is positive oh and But in the relationship now reigning between them, there is consummated the immemorial, immemorial and most sacred archetype of the marriage of mother and son. What, after all, has commonplace reality to offer with its registry offices, pay envelopes, monthly rent, strip clubs that could outweigh the mystic awe of the Hyros Gamos? or the star-crowned woman whom the dragon pursues, or the pious obscurities veiling the marriage of a lamb. She's like, he's talking in normal language and he has to go into metaphor because it's fucking young, isn't it? Long. No, we de like, definitely, just for the sake of drama, let's, let's, let's wind back to those bracketed sentences there. Um, this naturally causes her the deepest anxiety when to her greater glory he turns out to be a homosexual, for example. And is Jung saying that she she becomes anxious when he goes out and tries to fight life and conquer life and, and claim a wife. And that is this, this war in order to claim. And that's why you can often see a tad, a tiny seed of resentment between, between mother and wife and um, between mother and son's wife. It's always like, Oh Jesus, there's my in-law type situation. And so is he suggesting that when she, he comes back and he's like, mom, I'm gay. She's like, yes, yes. Yes, and this is where it gets really weird on the psychology because it's uh, what was this, the specific line? I don't want to. Because that would be uh, the, the marriage of mother and son. 
you know, it's, it's like consummated the immemorial and most sacred archetype of the marriage of mother and son. So it is almost on an unconscious level sexual, but, but, but not really. So it's like the first love of your life, as you describe the mother, you know, is your mother. And now you're going to go out and you're going to not just conquer the world and put yourself at, at great risk, but you're also going to find a second love, which is something. You're going to create a mother. Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost like you're breaking up with her, which you are yeah. technically, and and we we don't want that. We'll say the mother doesn't like that very much. I'm sure there are other things to it. That that to me seems to be the most obvious reading from that. It's like well, the homosexual doesn't do what doesn't go out and sleep with women or doesn't form a family. Oh my god! <laughs> so so that's specifically why you know Neil's writing in the 1950s. You know today might be different because homosexuals can go and form their own. Um, civil partnerships and their own homosexual marriages. So may- maybe that changes things slightly. But yeah, uh, nonetheless, I think psychology might be interesting. I think yeah, no, it's fascinating. That's very interesting that he pulled it up. Actually, I, I, I didn't notice that when I was reading through it the last couple of times. That's interesting. And so, Jesus, he's dropping red pills all sides. Like, what? <laughs> he talks about the flat earth very soon as well, as far as I'm aware. Does he actually? <laughs> Your excitement spoke for itself there, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm going, yeah, fuck, I got gamed away. And we're talking about the conspiracy between the mother and son. Like, I'm just getting all triggered here, man. It's mother like... nature and son being the elites. <laughs> um, that's, that, that is crazy, because that would make sense then, is that, like, she's almost, she, she wants him to betray life secretly. And so when he comes back and he's like, I'm homosexual, she's like, damn, yeah that's it sweet so you love me and you'll never love any other woman apart from me and there's this thing among italians and there's this common saying where a man will never love his woman as much as he loves his mother and there's almost like women are always like really angry at italians for that because they're like they're this like deification the virgin mary is like their mother in in some sense and so there is that that little bit of uh it's not necessarily like sexual but it's it's like uh Apage, I think the Greeks call it. It's like that one of the, the most noble forms of love, but it's it's like true devotion in a way. And what's what's interesting about this then is Jung is suggesting that on some level you actually have to break that love. You have to say, "No, mom, I'm not going to call you all the time. No, mom, I'm not going to be your 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 you know little designer baby. I'm not going to be your friend." And like, and that that's a really harsh thing because it's like, why would you do that to your mother? But it's sort of like, in some sense, you need to do that to break free and maybe return and fix it. And that's that's me projecting somewhat what my life experience is like. Like I left home when I was 12. So I had a pretty harsh break with my family and it was like for a long time, I didn't really speak to them at all. And then I slowly built it back up later on, but I really felt like, I really feel the the, the boundaries are well-defined and it's clear that I'm a man and it's, it's very, I don't know. It's a very good relationship. I feel I really enjoy talking to my parents now, which is interesting. And that that last thing on the homosexual thing, I'm focusing in this way too much. People are going to fucking get so. No, I, I actually do think it's key. I'd like to actually add an extra thing. So uh, he he said turns out to be homosexual. For example, so there are other examples. I, I think basically what he's putting in a specific to cover for uh, people who are naturally not tendent or not capable of engaging on the traditional hero's journey. So meaning, that doesn't mean homosexuals can't engage on a hero's journey, but generally the George and the Dragon myth, for example, is you get the girl. So, and, mm-hmm. and, and the girl being feminine relates back to the mother, Imago. So you could also throw in there people who are probably severely mentally disabled, you know, that, that type, type of thing. So generally you can see like the mother with her disabled son and the disabled son never leaves the mother's side up until he's like 35, 40 years old, he remains with her. So I think you could replace the same thing. And if anyone listening to this is immediately triggered by some kind of fluffy language, it's like, no, stick to the psychological literature. That's why I'm not deviating too politically. It's like, it means those who naturally do not engage on that traditional path, because that traditional path has been the norm for all of humanity, therefore has embedded itself into our collective unconscious because it has evolved cross-culturally over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And what's interesting as well is that uh, like what we're talking about here is, is necessarily symbolic. Like it's like the, the woman is symbolic of the feminine world, of uh, the world that you conquer, of the world that you achieve. That's what the mythology is. And so Jung is, is sort of suggesting that in many ways that this is the drama that plays out in your head. Like you go and you fight the world. And so the mother's drama, and this is a hard thing for us to understand because we're lads, but like the mother's drama, she has this like little perfect child and it has to go out and get broken 
And she's like, oh, fuck, I have to go let this kid run out the door and get destroyed by this earth. And I've been taking care of him for the whole time. And in a weird way, the destruction, the breaking, the, 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 the ripping apart of the child is performed by another woman in the weirdest way possible inside the, the mother's mind. A younger, you know, hussy. It's like, oh, bitch. But then when he comes back with a, a almost like a brother, like a, replica, a replication of himself, what he's done is he's like created two incubated children. She's like, yes, I've got now two gay games. <laughs> like, that was a brilliant slip. You can see like the mother just wants a collection of homosexuals to keep on <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm saying. Like, let's just get it out there, man. That's the conspiracy, man. And like, so I guess what I'm trying to layer on top of that is that it's very interesting in our time when we can definitely make a solid argument that the society, the city, the economy, the, the whole infrastructure has become more eatable. This, like, you know, you've got safe spaces in college nowadays and stuff like that. And everything has been more focused on making things more comfortable and less dangerous and less, uh, less lifelike in many ways. But you think the more, the more comfortable, the, the only way you can make something comfortable is to remove nature from it. You're getting rid of modern nature. That's a very interesting suggestion there is that, mm-hmm. like, all right, we'll, we'll make these lovely little cities with these nice, soft, dead wood things all around them. And um, well, but there's, there's something to be said for things being comfortable, you know, that that's one thing. But when people talk about the feminization of society, as people often do, and it's and you can definitely see traits of that, for example, in, in safe spaces, or you can't say mean things to each other, you know, you can't throw snowballs at each other. It is, it is the feminine as such becoming very dominant in the minds of people. It's like protection and maternal instinct, looking after, caring, kindness, traditionally feminine roles, that's dominant. And that's what's most important. And, and that's what you can see. That's a reflection of this, of this great slash terrible mother idea coming down. Yeah. And what, like, what's more interesting about that is that there's been a huge, huge rise in the amount of the prominence of homosexuality. People have become like super obsessed with that. And it's, it's starting to get celebrated in culture to like a massive extent now. And what's really interesting is the, how that correlates with this, this arrival of the great mother. And also then you've got these people who are mythologizing this is the time for God to die and for the great mother, the goddess to be pedestalized now instead. So you've got all these things working in together. You've got the great mother getting pedestalized on the super mythological level, God and the great mother and mother and earth becoming worshipped for the sake of the environment. Then you've got the, the effeminization of the, the giant cradle. Cities are like giant cradles and they're becoming softer and softer. And then within that context, men are becoming less heroic. They're becoming less masculine. They're becoming less in touch with nature. And so, by that sense there's like the rise in homosexuality which is crazy and like things like trans like different different uh different genders and whatnot so that, that's very interesting how all that psychological stuff plays out yeah it's, it's i've got to say as well it's purely um hypothetical like it's really interesting to explore these ideas but we don't we don't pretend to know specifically why these things are happening we know we're not specifically saying a, an increase in the incidence of homosexuality decade on decade is a direct result of this we don't know it's an interesting hypothesis the fact that all these things tie together but in general homosexuality relates back to this you know but in general the the um the, the fluffiness of the education system relates back to this Yes, yes. I, I have, to have to maintain things grounded before it. <laughs> I was, I was going to just whisper a conspiracy, but then I was like, no, don't do it. <laughs> should we, should we uh, press on? We most certainly should, sir. We most certainly should. Wonderful. Um, this myth, better than any other, illustrates the nature of the collective unconscious. At this level, the mother is both old and young, Demeter and Persephone, and the son is spouse and sleeping suckling rolled into one. The imperfections of real life with its laborious adaptations and manifold disappointments naturally cannot compete with such a state of indescribable fulfillment. So I guess just briefly on that, um, the idea that, that it's both old and young at the same time, that's the as such idea. It's like the feminine as such, the man as such, the son as such, which is like all like abstract what's common across all sons in the past and into the future into one entity so this 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 imago entity which is imprinted on top of him i i would like to drop something quickly as well is that he's also suggesting that the masculine and femininity are the are the common denominators here so a woman a mother is in essence just a woman and a, a son is in essence just a man and so there is the problem where you've got a man and a woman relationship that's the simple rendition and you've got to layer on top of that the mother-son relationship, but you've also got to layer on top, on top of that the male-female husband-wife relationship. So packed into 
all relationships between men and women is the dynamics of all types of relationships between men and women. So the woman, the mother looks at her son, not only as a son, but also with this tiny hint of you're a lover or you're my husband or something like that. Mm. And vice versa, that the son looks at the mother a tad bit like you're, you're the goddess as well. And, and that's, that's a very interesting way to put it. Yeah. So he like, he can he he would like eventually sexualize her to an extent in a very sinister way. Well, that's interesting. It's like, what's the role of a husband or a wife? And you immediately your mind jumps to sexuality, but it's like outside of sexuality, what is it? And there's like companionship, stability, yeah. things of this nature. And that's exactly what you have with mother and son. Exactly the same thing. It's it's not it's not a spousal relationship because it's not equal. There's 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 defined hierarchy and roles within that, but they both feed off of each other. But um, and then whenever the, the the sexual element comes in, that's generally considered um, taboo and pathological, of course. But um, I yeah. shall I shall press on with this marvelous work of literature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, in the case of the son, the projection-making factor is identical with the mother imago, and this is consequently taken to be the real mother. The projection can only be dissolved when the son sees that in the realm of his psyche, there is an imago not only of the mother, but of the daughter, the sister, the beloved, the heavenly goddess, and the chthonic balbo, or bobo, balbo, balbo. Every mother and every beloved is forced to become the carrier and embodiment of this omnipresent and ageless image, which corresponds to the deepest reality in a man. It belongs to him, this perilous image of woman. She stands for the loyalty which in the interest of life he must sometimes forego. She is the much needed compensation for the risks, struggles, sacrifices that all end in disappointment. She is the solace for all the bitterness of life. And at the same time, she is the great illusionist, the seductress who draws him into life with her Maya, and not only into life's reasonable and useful aspects, but into its frightful paradoxes and ambivalences where good and evil, success and ruin, hope and despair counterbalance one another. Because she is his greatest danger, she demands from a man his greatest. And if he has it in him, he will receive it. So she will receive it. That's, man, Young Young is usually quite a dry writer, but this is some good shit, man. Holy <laughs> shit. He's, he's, um, he's like describing... It's almost like he's acting out the, the, the dramatics of the collective unconscious. If that acts in like a drama form, he's almost writing in a drama form. He's not writing it purely as a clinician. He's adding the emotional weight, which I think in either lecture one or two, he talked about that you can't just analyze things purely with the scientific method. There's also emotional weight to things. Maybe that's what he's trying to do here. He was bored and he was old and sick. I don't know. I, he's just getting getting a bit of a kick out of it. This is his form of fapping, imagine. <laughs> just like this is this is more abstracted fapping rather than <laughs> his anima must be really developed now. So he's like he's fapping to Sophia with like you know writing <laughs> like that. Whereas we're stuck. Whereas well, where like you know young men are stuck all the way back in this this Eve like situation. Imagine Dante at the beginning of Dante's Inferno. Like, so Dante found himself fapping to Beatrice. And then Beatrice came down. Jesus Christ, man! I, I, like Freud did have his suggestion that um, the all great works of art and creation are simply sublimation. So you take the ego, the libido that starts on the lower chakras. This is the lower anima, if you will. And then you like, you know, Freud went celibate, and then he charges up that energy. He goes no faff, and he charges up that energy, and it rises up the chakras, and then bursts out your mind as like great creative works. Did you say, uh, was it you who said this, or did I read this somewhere else where Freud decided he wasn't going to have sex with his wife anymore? Yeah, imagine, imagine that conversation at, at 40 years old. He says, yeah, me and you are never going to have sex again because I need it in order to write civilizations and it's discontent. Which is a good book, to be fair. But I don't know, I, I don't know if it's necessary to go on NoFap to write the great works. Yeah, wow, yeah. Like that, that is very tyrannical in this poor wife. My God, imagine that situation. This, this guy was supposed to be a psychologist as well. Imagine that stuff. He's like, surely that's going to send her insane. Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, it's written into the marriage vows, but, but maybe you have to break the rules if you're going to become part of the Western canon. Who knows? See, Freud was already part of the Western canon at that point, the fucking mad bastard. Like, um, but yeah, that's, that's what he did. Like, that, that is an example of him. Like, at least he's being uh, consistent and saying, if I want to create something everlasting and live forever, if I want the libido to turn into an immortalized piece of literature what i'm going to do is stop the libido expressing itself in its lower form its lower anima and move up into sophia so that, that's yeah that is sort of what he's they're doing like it's very interesting very nonetheless interesting. To, to kind of to ground myself to the text here a bit the reason why i like find this so um capturing is because it's describing in mythic depth the relationship between men and women in in the sense of 
the, the reason why men go in that cult for the hero's journey, you know, it's like, it's, it's like the, all those paradoxes wrapped up. It's like the, the great boon that it is to have a woman, but also like the, the incredible uh, struggle it is to, in order to make yourself a man worthy of having a woman. And then there, there is that dynamic of, uh, of women being like this nourishing and like, you know, uh, solace from the bitterness as they say, but also like she can like rip your heart out as well. And she can be like frustrating and difficult and annoying and like a problem towards you re- reaching greater success. And there's all this, massive dynamic of uh, that, that feminine masculine relationship and it's um it's utterly beautiful and it is essentially it boils down to the irrational call to life which is something that i guess like as someone who's very artistically orientated like absolutely i am enamored with it, i love it and i think it's so important and i find a lot of people a lot of men specifically and um, get very caught up in the rational way of looking at things and they miss out on this a lot and don't realize just how in- insane reality is and what it's actually calling you is to to take part Dionysian like in that insanity because it's almost got a righteousness a sophistication in it that you don't see and Jung is almost pulling the veil back in that and saying this is how it makes sense trust the process and it's very simple but it's very powerful yeah yeah he sums up beautifully um all the good and bad things that the feminine as such does to the masculine as such which is very very interesting and the way young men usually look at the feminine especially in today's political world it's either feminine is God, like you get with the male feminist types, or simply you have the more MGTOW types who become bitter and they only see them as bad. And, yeah. and so what he's doing here is like the feminine is a beautiful thing that the masculine is naturally drawn towards and chases, but will also tear you to pieces if you're not everything you could possibly be. And that's the great mother, terrible mother dynamic. Because it says because she is his greatest danger, she demands from a man his greatest and it's essentially hinting like and you can take this as self-help if you want to and you remember watching this it's like if you want to have the best relationship possible with the feminine which you naturally have to you have to be completely and utterly together like you have to be completely and utterly together it will tear you apart yeah this is this is a very very interesting um thing to dig into because in the modern age we we're suffering collectively from an inability to grant the feminine its dark side which is just so stupid like that's going to destroy us i'd say if we're not careful and so like like all archetypes have a a a, a dual no all archetypes are nuanced and they have a complexity to them they can have both a dark side a light side and even an ambivalent side you know they they can be many sides for for simplicity's sake i'm just going to stick with light and darkness here and um, the the great mother for example the, the incubating goddess has a bright side it's obvious she makes it comforting and it gives you the ability to grow you need that so she, she can do that on one hand. But on the flip side, she can flip into Mother Nature, which is her dark side. And in many ways, the incubating side of her makes you, like softens you up to be eaten by Mother Nature. This is why we can say the dark side of the incubating one is even more complicated because it's got like, you know, you've got the incubating mother and then the dark side of that is the devouring mother. And then you've got Mother Nature, which is the dark side of this goddess who's like uh, Mother Nature is the, the, the ruthless slaughtering Mother Nature but also in many senses, the, the, it's almost like she's like the weights room. She makes you stronger. She makes you worthy. She's also all the boons, all the fruit, all the beautiful women, all the success, all the abundance of life. And she also creates you too, Mother Nature, because you come from Mother Nature. And that's, that's it as well. It's like super important to understand that. And so th- there is this sense that there, there's incredible amount of duality, evil, paradox, strangeness, and complexity in all these things. But the, fundamentally the thing that unites them is the the, the nobility and the, the righteousness of the energy of pursuing that energy and uh and the struggle as well and yes you do get people you get it was so interesting you get these subcultures that are psychologically attached to one version of these archetypes and then they start to incubate together and create an echo chamber you get the the guys who are a bit too migtow and they're getting a bit little bit bitter and then they're all like oh all women are evil and it's like just they're speaking to one side of women. And then there's like a lot of people who are like, you know, male feminists is like, oh, the goddess. Yeah. Why does she fuck the bad guys all the time? It's like that type of situation. Yeah. So it's very interesting. I, I hope the way we're approaching this text is useful to people where we could purely stick to. Um, I mean, you could technically read the book yourself, right? And it will tell you things. But to try and relate this to real life and to try and resonate with different parts of your, of, of your psyche, your lived experience, I think it should be very, very useful. Um, but I shall press on in my marvellous received pronunciation English accent. Yes, quite. Very, marvellous. very well trained. Mar- marvellous. This image is my lady soul as Spitala, 
I think it's pronounced Spitala, though I have only read these words. I don't know how to pronounce it. Spitala, which is disgusting. Oh, who's, who's dyslexic now? <laughs> as, as, as Mr. Spit called her. I have suggested instead the term anima as indicating something specific for which the expression soul is too general and too vague. The empirical reality summed up under the concept of the anima forms an extremely dramatic fucking content of the unconscious. It is possible to describe this content in rational scientific language, but in this way, one entirely fails to express its living character. Therefore, my friends, in describing the living processes of the psyche, I deliberately and consciously give preference to a dramatic, mythological way of thinking and speaking, because this is not only more expressive, and I do love a bit of expression now and again, but also more exact than an abstract scientific terminology, which is won't to toy with the won't to toy, want to toy? Want, want, want. Jesus Christ, I'm autistic today. With the notion that its theoretic formulations may one fine day be resolved into algebraic equations. This, um, this is very interesting because Jung says that, uh, this is where we start getting in, that, that's a great passage. That's essentially describing what I was talking about, how uh, th there is there is this sense that uh, you, you can try rationalize it. You can try break it down into the logic. You can try make this little graph where it's like good mother, bad Oedipal mother, mother nature, devouring mother. You know, you can make this little graph. It's like, it, it works out perfectly. It's mathematical, James. Like it's, it's obvious, you know, mm. and, and of course I have to be British for that. And then um, you, you can get these dynamics. You can rationalize it all you want, but fundamentally it's, it's, it's a, a lived experience. It's dramatic. It's about engaging with it. It's about, getting in the flesh of life you could say and um and Jung is like obviously he's saying that this is done through the, the realm of mythology and storytelling and what's so fascinating is that the the artist that is his role in essence like you can sort of give the artist as like Jordan Peterson study he's like this is how the model of the self works or this is how the model of mythology works and you can read that and be like oh that makes sense but then the artist could take that and, and try turn it into a story dramatize it and for some reason you already know it this is, I guess, what he means by an archetype. You already know the infrastructure. It's built into you. But when someone fleshes it out, when someone brings it to life, for some reason, it captures you. And that's, that's uh, really what he's, he's getting at here, which is fascinating. Yeah, there's different languages of the psyche. When you have a dream, and, and of course, you know this, Stefan, because you're into satanic dream reading. When you have a dream, um, it, it speaks to you in symbols, and it doesn't really make much sense. And then you wake up in the morning, and you write down what happened in, in your dream. But the words of the dream don't quite they don't quite reflect what actually happened. They're like a translation. They go through like, like a filter. And actually what your conscious brain will want to do is try and shift it to make more sense to what you're currently aware of. But the, the anima and animus can never be truly fully realized. They, they, yeah. they exist beyond the veil of, of ego comprehension, more or less. You, you can understand it intuitively to a large extent, but there will always be that, that lost in translation issue, I suppose. Yes, yes. Very interesting. Press on, good sir. Yes, my drunken Irish friend. The, <laughs> the projection-making factor is the anima, or rather the unconscious as represented by the anima. Whenever she appears in dreams, visions, fantasies, she takes on personified form, thus demonstrating that the factor she embodies possesses all the outstanding characteristics of a feminine being. She is not an invention of the conscious, but a spontaneous product of the unconscious. Nor is she a substitute figure for the mother. No, 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 my friends. On the contrary, there is every likelihood that the numinous qualities which make the mother imago so dangerously powerful derive from the collective archetype of the anima, which is incarnated anew in every male child. Oh, wow, okay, that's an interesting thought. Yes, that is quite an interesting thought indeed. However, I think it makes perfect sense on its own. Um, how do you mean? I think I'm not sure how I can expand on what Jung said. I think that was a perfect, a perfect. Well, is he is he saying that? Uh, so he, no, he's saying right there. He's saying that the anima is rooted in the male psyche, and is he suggesting that uh, she's not a substitute for the mother? So you can't gain nourishment off your own anima. You can't just sit there and imagine. Like, do you remember? Do you know what I was saying? You fat to weave, and then eventually you start to sublimate your celibacy into the civilizations and disconnect and, and worship Sophia. And she, he's sort of suggesting that you can't gain that that nourishment off the anima of Sophia, like you would off your mother itself. Is 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 he warning against that? Well, certainly you don't get physiological nourishment from from a psychological concept. First, first of all, so you can say, okay, that's that. Um, 
in the individuation process, you have to come to terms with the anima because it exists from beyond the shadow. So it, it sort of provides nourishment to you in that language because it, it, it presents things to you which need to be integrated if you're going to continue down that process of becoming a powerful individual. It's, it, it's, it's not quite, I'm going to tap into this energy source. I'm going to tap into the mother's breast and receive nourishment. It's more like some kind of character that exists in your mind that you can learn from almost. And is the puppeteer to you sometimes. It's like an autonomous entity that exists in your own mind. It's not a substitute for the mother per se, because the mother is, is you have a personal bond with yeah. the mother. Yeah, yeah. You can, as I said, suckle on her teat, etc. Perhaps not at, not at your age, although you are into some strange satanic worship. <laughs> so if, if that makes any sense. Yes. Okay. I understand. I understand. I guess we will have to, we will have to take a, a heavy, heavy hit at trying to model the na the nature of the anima being something very personal to the male and likewise for the female. Now soon, I feel that's coming up. So uh, let's press on and see what we've got. Yeah, uh, might not be in this particular lecture because uh, we should uh, have to end this in five minutes or so. So we'll get through another paragraph and then. Um... Okay. Sweet. Yeah, we'll finish up after here. Cool. Since the anima is an archetype that is found in men, it is reasonable to suppose that an equivalent archetype must be present in women. For just as the man is compensated by a feminine element, so woman is compensated by a masculine one. I do not, however, wish this argument to give the impression that these compensatory relationships were arrived at by deduction. On the contrary, long and varied experience was needed in order to grasp the nature of anima and animus empirically. Whatever we have to say about these archetypes, therefore, is either directly verifiable or at least rendered probable by the facts. At the same time, I'm fully aware that we're discussing pioneer work, which by its very nature can only be provisional. That reminded me so much of like when, when you want to do a video on the flat earth and you've got to do a disclaimer at the front. You're like, we don't necessarily believe in the flat earth. It's like, but of course, where we're playing around being semi-trolled, right? Jung's actually like, I know you're going to attack me, scientific community. Calm the fuck down. Like that yeah. pioneer work. And the difference is like he spent, you know, 40, 50 years studying people's dreams, whereas we've like never even studied that. Like we haven't gone out with telescopes. Well, I haven't gone out with telescopes and checked out <laughs> the earth is flat or anything like that. Well, YouTube exists. People can look up the flat earth truth. Again, I'm joking, people. Just adding a touch of, of jovial wit to your day whenever you have if, watching this. Look at the Englishman making jokes. It's so it's so jolly. English comedy is the best comedy, by the way. No, it's not. Irish yes, comedy is Dylan, Dylan Moran is better than all Englishmen put together. You could actually just like abstract all English comedians into like this animus and show with the women and they puke and then you show the, the, the Irish animists and they'd be like that's so great that's the best one i've ever seen go go watch the greg davies series man down on channel four it's the most obscure shit you've ever seen in your fucking life and it's hilarious there, there is some good english comedy some good english comedy i think it's mainly the people with irish genetics though let's um god's sake let's uh let's 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 close on this and we'll just briefly talk about um the dynamics perhaps of the animus i'm going to drop uh, some dynamics in the animus as i understand it for example, there is this common uh, study, a uh, funny study that came out there a while ago where they, um, they, they took the aggregate of all uh, romantic, erotic fiction that women read. Women, so this is interesting, first of all, is that women are actually very stimulated by reading. This is actually a big deal. Like men, you know, men don't, don't read books to get off. They sit in their imagination and like visualize stuff, which is, which is interesting, or they watch porn, which is interesting, whereas women... We'll, uh, so, so, so it's either read young or watch porn. That's what men do for fun. So you're suggesting. It's what? Men. So, so either men watch porn or they read young. Yes. In order to have fun, they do one of the two. That, that's pretty much, I hope I'm not telling you my life. Like, <laughs> but like women, women are apparently like more um, word stimulated, which is interesting. Because even when you wrap up into these more like metaphysical ideas, like the logos and stuff like that, you're getting into something very, very strange in that essence that they... Um, they, they, they would like receive the, the dream and then they like that, the dream turns them on, the dream stimulates them. And they checked out all the, the fiction stories and they found out that there was like quite a common archetype getting presented. It was uh, you're either going to have a pirate or a surgeon or a billionaire or uh, it could have been it's werewolf or something. Werewolf, that's what it is. Vampire uh, va well. Vampire as well. And vampires are innately sexual because it's about sucking your blood. It's like, yeah. yeah really and that's weird because i've always trying to figure that one out was like what's what turns girls on about having their blood sucked and there's something because you like like i can see the werewolf it's almost like you want the animal nature of a man you want a, a savage and you almost want an, a savage that you feel that you can turn into a man 
that's like the beauty and the beast story right there and so you want this like furious werewolf that you feel that you can you know under the right moon you see him for what he truly is and he's got a noble nature but like a vampire is like like why he, that that's almost like him turning you into him him sucking your blood it's like him taking something from you that's and that's a weird one that's almost like a scary thought of like is that a side of women's psyche where they want to they want that sort of like abuse or to be in a way some women always go back to a partner that abuses them or takes something from them so maybe maybe it's that desire to to have something taken from you i don't, I don't know i don't know what's going I, on I, I think so usually in the masculine feminine dynamics the man gives energy to the woman yes, yes. Rough, rough, roughly speaking so that gets confusing but what nietzsche thought i think i think this was in the gay science he, he wrote out that I don't know why he does this, by the way. Nietzsche will randomly start talking about women and then be like, make some really high IQ, crude jokes about women. And say, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, but he, he said that like, women wants to be loved completely. She wants to have everything of hers taken completely, which is actually at odds with that original sexual dynamic idea. So it must be some layering idea, but I don't completely understand it. So I think it's that, that the man chooses her and is going to not only physically dominate her, taboo, or, uh, but she's also going to completely take her life force. It's like yeah. she completely wants to be taken. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's that, it's yeah, it's something along those lines. And it's it's like it's, um, it's also the integration of life forces too, in a weird way, which is also innately sexual. And what's so weird is about this as well is that I've uh, like some of the most feminine women I know, and they're really like they're really beautiful souls, but they they are the most obsessed with vampires. It's crazy, <laughs> and and they they absolutely just love the ideas of vampires, and even uh, yeah, they have these like fantasy worlds. It's mad. Um, the, the, there's the vampire thing the billionaire one is always so funny because you have 50 shades of gray so it's like billionaire super high status you know like like the, and then he, he beats the girl like it's like, <laughs> it's like oh of course and that, that, that would be a patriarchal tyrant definitely yeah patriarchal tyrant and then you've got um you've got uh the pirate like so what's this this is the rebel without a cause the savage you know he's almost like um he's like that guy who who sets he's like a drug dealer you know he's like the thug he's like the bad guy that he's the, the archetypal bad guy within that spectrum you're sort of getting this sort of image of an anima or the same way as we have the image of eve they have this this image of of naughty adam you could say and it's yes. um, it's very very interesting to see how that manifests because that i think that's quite insightful because a lot of guys you know speaking of the male feminist thing or the, the soy boy situation where you've got like guys who are trying to be like they're trying to nice their way into bed they're trying to be like oh, i'll be the, the nicest guy ever and then you see what women are dreaming of and it's like oh they actually want like in many ways there's only one of those that are in somewhat a respectable character well one or two you've got the surgeon and the billionaire and then the rest of them are it's like a, a wolf a fucking vampire and then like a pirate like are you serious yeah, pirates used to rape for fun let me just leave that out there without any comment <laughs> yeah like it, it's crazy it's it, it's crazy because there's there's that common meme where it's like oh why do why does the girl always disrespect and friend zone me and then go after the bad guy and then it's like the animus is that bad guy and just, like, the reason for that obviously is that women would be attracted to strength that would be their natural biological disposition and it's like they want a warrior, even if he's a little bit dangerous or evil. They want a warrior over someone who's soft and eatable. And it plays into that thing as well. Is that like someone who's eatable, like life, women being life and the psyche of a woman being a representation of Mother Nature looks at a soft boy and she's like, you're stuck in Oedipus. I am the devouring mother to you. I'm turned off by you. That's it's just so crazy how that stuff plays out. It's, very- mm. it's yeah, it's it's. Um- whatever the red pill is for example it's like that's where some of its roots arise from is like pop psychology that there is there is some some psychological truth between gender dynamics i've got quite to close by just briefly summarizing i guess what we're going to do and what we're going to cover next time so the we've now entered the collective unconscious the impersonal levels of the collective unconscious we've continued our journey my beautiful friends and now we're down here and it's a confusing place and we don't really know what's going on so what Jung's done is he's brought up having sex with your mother, not not quite, but 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 the 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 mother son relationship and how that can turn, we'll say, pathological, or how innately it is seems to be at odds with uh, the way we would deem to be morally virtuous. There there is that relationship between mother and son, and we all experience it to some degree. So he's highlighted that as as the most accessible narrative of the collective unconscious. And then he's talked about anima first, and the anima is the unconscious feminine part of a man. It, it exists back there. And uh, being behind the shadow, or in some ways being a part of the shadow, 
you don't realize a lot of the contents that are in there. So, so the masculine psyche is dominated by logos. It's dominated by the word, the rational part of you that back in, in the background, in your anima, which, which takes on a personified forms, you say the character, it appears in your dreams. You can project it onto other people on the opposite sex, for example. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that represents Eros, more or less, which, which is the more feminine component of that. So, so far, all he's done, or all we've done so far, is describe that reality, which can be very difficult to understand. No bloody wonder. Probably because most of you watching this are going to be young people, so, and, and actually you won't have come to terms with all of these contents if you're unconscious yet. Um, but also because it's quite scary. You know, it, it is quite scary that you have a personified female living in the back of your mind, which is doing things to you. And, so, and that's what he's saying. It's like, that's an archetype. That's what it is. And there's, go look up the archetypes of the collective unconscious. They're all autonomous entities that exist in your mind, more or less. Yeah. And so and the next, next time he's going to go ahead and cover the opposite of that in the woman's mind, which is the animus, which is the masculine element of, of the woman's mind. And then also our fun part, our favorite part, uh, anima and animus possession essentially so yes. what, what happens when that puppet master goes oh you're mine now what that looks like and then um in order to demonstrate that most effectively it would be very difficult not to relate it into the current political realm which of course uh, will be great fun to see lots of people very upset um very very good summary very good prep um, and people should be all hyped and i guess the last thing i'd like to say is no i've actually forgot what i was going to say i had an idea but i got too caught up in what you were saying james you're too you're too you're too seductive, man. I was like, it's I just all the hand movements, isn't it? It's like I am the puppet master. Maybe I'm your anima. Who knows? Oh, puppet master is something to do with that. Not about the flatter and the elites, is it? Pretty much, people always came up to say that the the truth is Young was trying to say that the Earth is flat. <laughs> and, uh, that, that was like if you read between the lines. No, no, no. It's not even between the lines. Like all of this book is just psychology. Then you get to the last page. It's the Earth is. Flat. <laughs> This is what I was trying to say, actually. Yeah, it came back to me there. Thanks. The Earth and Flat helped me. It is a good meme. And it's interesting how he's describing that you gradually move into the collective as well. So the ego is, and the ego and the shadow, when we're talking about these, it, it does actually feel a little bit trite and low resolution and abstract. Like it's sort of like, you know, James and me, and we talk about our ego. And then we talk about and the shadow and it's like our dark side so it's like our personal problems and this is what he means by the personal unconscious it's very personalized especially at the start of the individuation process you deal with your lack of courage you deal with your fear your bitchiness and all that type of stuff and your um, arrogance and your obsession with yourself but then when you break into the anima and animus and he, he specifically says this is the, the point where we enter into the collective unconscious you start talking about bigger ideas you start talking about more generalized ideas you start talking about men and women for example and that's a way bigger concept and what's very interesting is as we get into the collective it becomes even more dramatic even more interesting and even more powerful to an extent and the stories become like super rich here as well and um and and there's something very engaging about it and it's because as we said we politicize this quite a lot and i think that's because what young is trying to say is that the collective unconscious the collective psyche is politicized like our, our political emotions are triggered by where our political our collective psyche is so the more we go into this the more we'll start to hit on the hard emotions and this is what will make this so it's it's, it's almost in in essence a proof of the concept in a weird way it's like suggesting that all right if we say this about this in this type of way will it trigger a response and it does and it's like wow young was on to something no doubt so um i do look forward to the next episode it's going to be awesome people Thank you very much. Comment down below if you think the earth is flat and tell us about... <laughs> Comment down below if you've got any opinions on the anima, the animus. Tell us what you think. And uh, definitely check out James's channel for some practical mythological self-help. And I will link that below. And of, of course, check out all the books and much love. Thank you for watching. See you later. Share this with everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Love you all.